Doing this kind of farming is not just about climate. It is about food production, increasing food production. It's about biodiversity and supporting all the rest of life. It's phenomenal what the land will do if you just give it a break. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right. And today I'm speaking with Betsy Taylor as part of Post Carbon Institute's June focus on healthy soils. Betsy is president of Breakthrough Strategies and Solutions, a small consulting firm. Betsy has over four decades of philanthropic and nonprofit leadership experience. Since 2015, Betsy's consulting has focused primarily on building the field of regenerative agriculture. Her donor clients directed early funding to spark work at Project Drawdown, the Marin Carbon Project, and others. She organized and chaired a 2017 Soil Carbon Conference in, in Chantilly, France, with over 200 participants from 33 countries designed to map the field and explore opportunities. Betsy graduated from Duke University and has an MPA from Harvard University. She is co-author of Sustainable Planet, Solutions for the 21st Century. She owns and helps to manage an organic hay farm and grew up in rural Maryland in a conservative farming community. She relocated to Vermont in 2021 and is living on a 20 acre homestead where she is sequestering carbon and restoring the land. I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Betsy. Welcome Betsy Taylor uh, to What Could Possibly Go Right. And you and I met when you as a philanthropic advisor took an interest in consumerism as a driver of environmental decline and helped build a field, including the Center for New American Dream, which we birthed together in 1995. And now since 2015, you've done the same for the field of regenerative agriculture. You were a lead author of the 2019 Guide for Philanthropic Action and Investment, Healthy Soils to Cool the Planet. You served on the steering committee of the Funders for Regenerative Agriculture and are a board member of the Regenerative Agriculture Foundation. So this June, the Post Carbon Institute, the home of my podcast, is offering a special two-part online series where we'll explore why soil health matters, how it's related to our worsening climate crisis, and what individuals and communities can do to protect it. So there's going to be some great guests, but I wanted to talk with you to give us an overview of the regenerative agriculture field, where we are nationally, globally, in the shift from exploiting soils to regenerating soils, what breakthrough strategies are getting through the defense mechanisms of the industrial models grip on our politics and food production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Betsy, from where you sit, what is going right and what possibly could go righter? Well, that's a fabulous question and it's great to see you, Vicki. Um, so yeah, I, I jumped into this space before really regenerative ag was even a term. And um, back just to just this little bit of background in 2017 pulled together kind of the field. It was just trying to emerge. So pulled together 200 people, scientists, farmers, investors, just trying to say, can we build healthy soil to cool the planet? What do we know about that? And since the uh, since 2017, um, the field has exploded. And so what's going well is that many countries have committed to changing their approach to soil, that there's much research underway in many universities 
uh, in the United States and globally, trying to understand what's happening under the surface of the soil. So much of our academic work and, and actually the practice of agriculture since World War II has been based on chemistry. Is the nitrogen and phosphorus ratio right? Now the questions are, is the mycorrhizal fungi healthy? What's the biome? Do you, you know, what is the situation with your nematodes? Do you have lots of worms? Um, how deep does the soil go? Are you feeding your soil? How are you feeding it? So the questions in the research and the practice is really shifting and it's very exciting. Um, and what could go right is there is a lot that's going right. The, our own United States Department of Agriculture is stepping up funding as well as attention to regenerative ag. They're creating more incentives for farmers and ranchers and indigenous land stewards to adopt and sustain these practices. Um, you know, we are up against in the European Union and in the United States and in Australia and in pretty much every, every part of the world, um, an industrial uh, agricultural lobby that is based on, you know, maximizing the use of inputs that are all fossil fuel based. Um, and, and so there's, there's a lot to take on, um, but there's a lot going right. Yeah, so where do you see, you know, whether it's clever, strategic, heartfelt, where do you see the narratives that, can, that are sort of breaking through the, the, the sort of the harsh concrete of this industrial model. You know, sometimes somebody speaks a sentence that everybody recognizes is true and hearts melt and, and things start to move. Where, what are the narratives that are starting to like move people enough to be able to make change? Well, you know, they're, they're, the narratives that move farmers are the narratives from farmers. Mm. So, this field is not moving because of environmental books or talks. It's moving because farmers are talking to other farmers. And most farmers and ranchers really do care about their land and they wanna pass it on to the next generation in good shape. And actually climate change, the impacts, every farmer in the world is dealing with climate impacts. Almost all of them are dealing with either drought or flood. Uh, and it's often both, you know, within the same place. So I don't know if it's the narrative as much as the life experience. Farmers are seeing something, you know, they're seeing that things are different. The weather is different. Uh, productivity is different. Uh, the costs of the inputs that they've, they've, they're locked into are terribly expensive. The, just look at the cost of oil. Fertilizer is oil-based, pesticides are oil-based. Um, so they have a, an economic incentive to change. And when they see their neighbors, for example, I'll just give you one example. There were big floods in Nebraska and Iowa a couple of years ago, really massive, these huge, you know, uh, intensive rainstorms. And many of the farms were wiped out. Just, it was just, ranches too, and there, but there were a couple of farms and ranches that had been using the regenerative techniques, holistic grazing, cover crops, um, no-till agriculture, feeding the soil with compost and waste. Um, those, those farms held up so much better. And it, that was a narrative that was like, well, what happened? Mm. And the, the neighboring farmers wanted to know, why did your fields do so much better? For sure. Stewards from, from Ghana to Costa Rica, from Finland to California, 
they want their lands to be productive and they want them to be healthy. And we're learning a lot that if you feed the soil, if you care for the soil, it will give back in such a huge way. And you don't have to put in all these chemical inputs. And in fact, those chemical inputs have depleted and degraded the soil. So I think there's a shift. I don't want to overstate it. I mean, there's been a long, many decade, you know, approach to agriculture, which is industrial, which is monoculture, which is all commodity-based. And that is that that model is dominant in the United States, perhaps more than any other place. So there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say his name wrong. Olivier de Schuter, uh, the the report that he did for the United Nations that said, you know, basically, if you want to feed the world, agroecology is mm-hmm. really the way we're going to feed the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's not industrial agriculture, but the narrative that industrial agriculture that we cannot unhook from that because yeah. we are hooked on it. Yeah. And so where do you see are there countries where this the idea of agroecology is on the ascendancy where, you know, the support at, at a state or national level is is strong. People are learning. It's sort of like the way things the new way things are being done. Do you see that? Yeah. Well, different words are used in different places. Agroecological practices, it really comes from indigenous communities. It started, that that whole terminology came out of Latin America. Um, But yes, there's agroecological efforts in large parts of Africa, Asia, Latin America. Um, And it's all rooted in the notion of smaller plots, which are highly diversified. Often the agroecology farming is happening in tropical countries where you can have multi-tiered farming, where you're integrating you know, uh, fruit trees, nut mm. trees with crops, with, with animals, and you take the waste from your food and the waste from your animals, you plow that back, you know, not plow, but you put that back into the soil. And it's the most productive. It's also one of the highest carbon sequestering systems in the world. And it's where we need to shift. So you can see within the United States, a great movement towards smaller, regional, medium-sized farms populated by young, often farmers of color, indigenous farmers, really looking at, um, in some ways, we're going back to what we used to know how to do. So there's movements, you know, in Finland, which is one of the more affluent Scandinavian countries, a tremendous effort to do what they call carbon farming. In California, hundreds now of vineyards, ranchers, and farmers involved with carbon farming Mad Agriculture in Colorado is doing some of the most uh, innovative work, working with farmers from about, I think, seven states in the, in the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountain West. And it's happening. Farmers are doing it. The soils are going much deeper. The roots of crops are going much de- deeper. This allows us to sequester and pull carbon pollution out of the atmosphere into the soil. And we could, you know, even the IPCC, very conservative says we could sequester at least one to three gigatons a year. Doing this kind of farming is not just about climate. It is about food production, increasing food production. It's about biodiversity and supporting all the rest of life. But it's, it's uh, I'm doing it in my own, in my own 20 acres here. We've got, you know, we've got an incredible piece of land. We're growing food. We, we can on a very small postage stamp really size garden, grow enough food probably to feed many of our neighbors. And we don't put any chemical inputs in. We put in all of our food waste 
we put in the neighbor's uh, horse and cow manure. And, you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal what the land will do if you just give it a break. Right. In a way, what I'm hearing is that home gardening, Mm -hmm. you know, is a home gardener can consider him or herself as part of this regenerative movement that doing a little bit of regenerative practices on my little postage stamp. Yeah. I'm I'm working in my in, in my little village that I live in of a thousand people that it's sort of on a hillside down to a uh, a waterfront. It's it's a tourist town in a way. I, I think of it I think of it as a landscape dotted with houses, not neighborhoods with you know, not yeah. private property with lawns. Yeah. yeah, and I'm trying to promote that sort of systems shift view. Mm-hmm that we live in a landscape. And so we all care about how the water moves through our landscape. We all care about how the fertility moves through our landscape. And it's not just sort of the legal restrictions about what you can and can't do. Anyway, I'm just hoping that we can increase food production. Yes. On my island. Yeah, I think you absolutely can. And I would say, given how quickly we're facing, you know, the, the climate change is so nonlinear now and, and so many other things are interacting with it that I think it it's a really prudent and good idea for everyone to be part of or be connected into, whether if, if you don't want to do your own garden, to be part of a community-supported agricultural system and to think of it as a bioregion. And, you know, we can still have imports and exports. There are certain things you might not be able to grow up there like coffee and you might still want to drink it. But um, we need to shift very much towards bioregional production, bioregional supply chains, and we can do it pretty quickly. We need to capture our food waste. Uh, you know, cities like San Francisco and LA are showing the way they're capturing their food waste, turning it into compost, having that be sold at a very small price to vineyards and farmers and ranchers. It's greatly boosting their production, improving the the, the nutritional value of the food. This is another thing when you, when you take care of your soil, you increase the nutritional value of what comes out of it. If you simply throw chemicals on it, you, you, you deplete those nutrients and it's not hard. It's, 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 you know, I, I know from my own experience, um, we get no pests as long as you're doing the practices, which are all about diversification and feeding the soil, covering the soil. Um, it, it does, it's quite remarkable. And I'll just say one other thing here. When you think about the soil, um, it is restorative to us in other ways. So being out there, you're in an urban setting, even if it's just, you know, growing a, a pumpkin seed on your windowsill, or um, if you're, you know, can be part of a community garden, which I was for 20 years, the biggest community garden in Washington, DC. It's so restorative to be out and watch the miracle of of seeds producing plants that then produce food, that then produce waste that can go back to feed the seeds the next year. And how you don't have to buy the seeds, you can just collect them. We are living in a world of massive abundance. The rules are structured to make us always feel scarcity. And so the good news is there are many, many people trying to move the regenerative ag um, and agroecology fields forward. There are, it's like a political battle. It's not always so easy. And, and there are 
biological barriers, the soils are warming from climate change. And with the warming soils, things shift. But from the point of view of food security, there's absolutely no regrets here. We should all be getting involved with local farms and gardens. And and I'll just say like, there's a hundred cities in the United States that are working to improve local community gardens, local urban farms to help with this whole movement. Right. And, and I'm going to just pile on that gorgeous image of all these, these gardens and ask the question, because it's what we deal with here is that we are hampered. Our, our little local farmers are hampered by regulations designed to keep the food supply from an industrial system safe. So you can go to the supermarket, you can buy a carton of milk and it can have food, you know, milk from a thousand cows from a thousand different places and you can drink it. But it disallows buying milk from your neighbor's cow. Yeah. You know, so we're really bumping into that. And what I notice is that in my community, it's sort of like the idealistic young farmers and it's the libertarian farmers. You know, we have a really great guy who's who's doing the Joel Salatin method, and he is like as libertarian as they come. And I think it's a bridge issue. So where do you see, you know, food and farming as a bridge issue that sort of transcends or goes underneath this polarization that seems to stymie us? I do think that farming is, a, you know, regenerative agriculture is a bridge issue. And there are many conservative and Republican farmers and ranchers who have become interested in regenerative agriculture. And there have been many kitchen you know, table conversations among farmers and ranchers about how do you do this? How do you actually right. shift? How do you make the transition? Um, and I think the more that um, those who are not farming can build support, consumer support. So through your consumer choices, choose to buy from local farmers, choose to buy from regenerative farms and whether they be from conservative, you know, if, if this is a conservative farmer, conservative for whatever reasons, when they see, you know, uh, a whole group of consumers pledging their dollars or in support of these restorative practices, that builds a bridge, that builds a community. And I think, I think it's really important to, to listen because the farmers and producers and ranchers, it's not easy. Like right now I'm working with a rancher in uh, New Mexico. They have fires everywhere. They've had to, one of the ranchers has had to take all of her animals to another ranch for fear that they're gonna, they're gonna get killed by the fire. Mm-hmm. There's so many crises for, for these land stores. So I think, you know, as, as people who are neighbors, as people who visit farms, as people who try to support farmers, try to honor these people regardless of their political persuasion because they are really working hard, including a lot of the conventional farmers who haven't made the transition yet and want to. I live next to some pretty conventional dairy farmers here in Vermont and they work so hard and they're trapped. They're trapped inside of rules and regulations and subsidies and they would like to change. Um, so part of it, I think, you know, it's a bridge builder, especially if we show respect and uh, appreciate just how hard it is to figure it out, to figure, to, to change your mindset from pouring on fertilizer to capturing waste, making compost and feeding the soil that way. Mm. 
Yeah, I feel like you've just offered for anybody who's listening a lot of places that we can work to be part of the regenerative agriculture, restoring soils movement, if you will. And it's not a movement necessarily organized, it's a movement of hearts and practices, you know, mm -hmm. of real people in real places trying to figure things out. And so I really appreciate this as uh, just a conversation and also as a setup for the post-carbon inquiry into healthy soils. So thank you, Betsy. It's been my pleasure. Thank you yeah. for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.